0: <coughs> so somebody's asking, you know, how is uh, practice and study how they you know how should we work with those and how they are related to each other? And uh, you know, we could say like, if study without practice is is kind of useless and practice without study it can be dangerous if you're not, not knowing what you're doing. We can say that you know in a short way, because if you don't you know put the what you're studying in the books, if you don't experience it in your own being when practicing, it's not really ever you know gonna help you much in your in your daily life because you don't have insight because study alone is just like you know intellectual knowledge which doesn't really you know, make a lot of change in your life. So it's really important to, you know, as I said, I think earlier in the beginning, you know, it's like seeing a pointer and then just reading the pointer and and get stuck there and saying that it's quite pointless, really. You have to, you know, you have to follow that pointer into the direction it is pointing, and then you'll know what is meant. And just meditating and without having any instructions, there might be a few very exceptional people who can, you know, um, go very far in this way. But most people need some kind of a guidance at certain turning points of the practice where where one can get lost, you know. Especially if we have some very fascinating experiences, you know, which can happen sometimes. It's very easy to get stuck on those experiences and uh, stuck for years, even. or very pleasant, uh, you know, experiences of of, uh, samadhi. And if we don't have the right guidance, we could waste a lot of time. So, they work together and, uh, you know, if we use them together, they can carry us very far. Thank
1: you. What do what do Buddhist people do to undo a wrongful act that they've done? Um, I'm from the Catholic tradition, and when we're guilty of sinning, those are in quotes, we repeat repent our sins, pray for forgiveness, and go to confession. Is there a specific modality to seek forgiveness within this practice? Um, Well, basically in Buddhism, the Buddha repeatedly um, acknowledged and praised people for acknowledging what they've done. And he said, when you when you acknowledge what you've done and you decide to do better, then, you know, he always accepted that. Sometimes he gave people a bit of a lecture. (laughs) But, he said, that's the way to growth. So I like Ajahn Brahm's way of framing it. He calls it the AFL method. And it's acknowledge, forgive, and learn. And that's really the, the the formula that helps us improve. Of course, it depends on what we've done, and it's very helpful to make, of course, make amends and try to um, do what we can to right whatever wrong it is with people if we've harmed someone, and then it's also useful to, um, do good things to counterbalance what we've done. Um, add more of the, um, the good. So the, you've probably heard this, this simile many times of the, the salt water. So if, if you have a glass of water and you have a teaspoon of salt and you put the salt in the water and if the water represents the good and the salt represents the mistakes or the wrongful act then it's pretty salty but if you put that one teaspoon of salt in a lake, many good actions many, many, many good actions and then a teaspoon of salt and you wouldn't even notice it. And that's the way karma kind of works. So once we, whatever we do, the karma is already out there. You can't take it back. But you can dilute it. And you can learn. And when the heart changes and the mind is, is going in the, in the upward, you might say, direction to purify, it really helps change which way you're going. It changes the results of the karma. In the monastic form, we have um, confession twice a month. And I really like that with each other. We discuss whatever of the 311 rules that we have that kind of govern your entire life um, might have been held better. And that is really (laughs) helpful to talk about, you know, how, how would I like to do something differently? So if you have a good friend, um, they can't absolve you, (laughs) but you can um, make progress in in, uh, becoming more skillful.
0: Can you speak (laughs) specifically about the... um Difference between pain and suffering in light of experiencing unpleasant emotion. For instance, when is an emotion simply unpleasant but not causing suffering? It's a funny question because it's very clear, isn't it? Whenever you're not attaching to your emotion or you're not in the the way of wanting it to stay or wanting it to go away, then you have just the pain but not, not... putting suffering on top of it and there's a sutta that's called the second arrow you know where somebody is shot by an arrow and uh, that is painful mm. you know but then if the person you know is hanging on to that arrow and not wanting it to have it removed you know it's like shooting a second arrow and kind of wanting to know everything about you know, why has it come to pass, who shot the arrow, what's the arrow made of, you know, what's the uh, from where has it come, and tons of different information, and then he's already dead, you know, until he's finished <laughs> thinking about it. So, this is what is meant, you know, with the difference between pain and suffering. And we can experience it in big and small ways, you know, every day. Just you're feeling you know something happens, and then on top of that, you put a story on top of it about how undeserving you are or how bad you are because you have this feeling, because we seem to have a tendency, you know if we have unpleasant feeling, there's like a tendency of uh, thinking this unpleasant feeling has come to me because i'm I'm bad or something like that might have something to do with our, you know, Christian conditioning. Or, you know, it is really uh, something to really look at, you know, how much we are um, making more out of it than it's necessary, than just being with it and waiting for it to cease. And it's easier said than done, but that's, you know, one of the very uh, great effects you know the practice can have over time that we get to know our you know our habitual ways of uh, meeting the world and and start to um, disidentify you know through repeating through seeing it for so many many times you know that it starts to dawn on us that that can't really be the way things are because it's it's a knee jerk reaction you know which comes from past conditioning, maybe, you know, very early in our lives, and we can carry those, you know, very early patterns to our deathbed, really, if we are not waking up to them.
1: When we are reborn, is it likely that I will be reincarnated as an animal? (laughs) Um, If you act like an animal, there's a chance... (laughs) Um, but rebirth really is most likely going to be on the same trajectory you are in this life. So if your mind is inclined towards that which uplifts, or as it says in the suttas, if you're practicing jhanas and you're in this beautiful mental state and you stay there a lot and you do this a lot and this is where your mind is and you're likely to... Uh, go on to that realm that's correlated with that jhana or that con- kind of level of concentration. If you're if you're doing good a lot, then you're likely to go into a heaven realm. The Buddha said, if you keep the five precepts your whole life, you will definitely go to heaven. Or better, of course, if you're practicing and, and gaining insight so the the animal realm is considered to be a lower realm, and um, it's it's a it's a realm of filled with fear, and we can see a lot of human behavior that's very like animals in that you know it's aggressive and harsh and um, you know so if you're um not acting that way or thinking that way then it's i can't I can't see in the terms of the way karma works that you're likely to go go down in that way and um, there's also another uh, a story that in the scriptures that talks about it being very rare once one is has an animal birth it's rare to become a human and that's Primarily because it's hard to make merit uh, as an animal. Although we know lots of animals that do. And we can encourage them <laughs> to do good and come back as a human being. <laughs> as
0: you say, animals who live in monasteries, they, are, they say they're often very, you know, they on the brink of being next life, maybe being born as a, as a human being. They kind of, you know, are in the presence of Dhamma talks a lot
1: and things like that. Curl up in your lap when you meditate and, you know. Yeah. But one of, the, one of the arahants in Thailand said that, he said, you know, these, these elderly women who get so involved with their dogs and love their dogs so much, they come back as that dog's puppy. I don't know was he kidding I don't know <laughs> try to keep your mind on the higher realms <laughs> so what are the
0: qualities of character or being that persist after death all all of them you know it's, it's mm-hmm. as we said you know several times it's, it's the sum total of the qualities of a mainstream which are you know Determining in which way that the next
1: existence will be. My breathing gets tight and unnatural when I start paying attention to the breath. Do you have suggestions on ways to relax and make the breath go back to normal? I think this is pretty common, actually. Um, I know... You know, oftentimes we're given the instruction to just observe the breath and not change it. And then I know my experience is as soon as I watch it, it changes. So I think I think that's probably pretty common, and it may become tighter or uh, just seeming unnatural. But there's a, a particular tradition in Thailand, um, in the Thai forest tradition, a group that talks about Making the breath comfortable. So it's not like you're trying to do some kind of, you know, special breathing or anything, but to just think in terms of, well, if I make the breath a little bit longer, is that more comfortable? Or a little shorter? Or just is really being there with the breath in a kind way and just seeing if there's some little adjustment like that that could make you more at ease. And then, you know, work with it. But not worry too much about these automatic reactions. Just stay with it and, and experiment a little bit with patience and kindness.
0: Um, when I'm back in, daily, in my daily life, how can I know what is appropriate or healthy amount of Entertainment, beautification, and adornment. I think you know if you have to see how much, how many percent of your salary goes into it. I think that would be a good way if it's
1: fifty percent.
0: Yeah, that would fifty percent would be a lot. Yeah, and also you know why are you doing it? Do you know? Is it kind of out of of uh you know wanting to distract yourself from what you, from your experience or are you really you know using because there's lots of very good quality you know uh, films and and books and theater and things out there i'm sure and uh to just you know use it for uplifting the mind inspiring the mind and uh Informing ourselves about you know what's going on in the world, I think that's a, a very good thing. And uh, but it, you can only take in so much, you know, and then the mind really it becomes dull and shuts down. So if it's if it's too much, then it's really it can become addictive, really, so that you can't anymore you know be with yourself without having the radio on or without you know every night watching a movie and, you know, going into a different world because you don't like your, the world you're living in. So, and also the same, you know, for for clothing and and jewelry and, and makeup and all of that. I mean, a certain amount of that is, I think, can be uplifting to the mind, you know, f- makes you feel more confident and celebrating, you know, the beauty and using it, you know, in order to, you know, kind of bring some, uh, you know, uplift into your life. But then, you know, if you're like a slave to fashion and constantly, you know, looking how much you're weighing and all of that stuff, then it becomes again an addiction and it's, it's it becomes a burden, so... I think it's it's you know it's quite an art to be able to to use all of these different areas you know of of a human life and not falling prey to all the dictates you know from the advertisements and from the culture so doing it you know the middle way is 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 the right way for everything including you know adornment and beautification and entertainment as well.
1: Thank you, ISN to Secure, for sharing about your mother. My father passed away last year and my mother is in poor health. I feel I was not prepared and I did not help prepare my father for his death. I do not want to make the same mistake I did with my father. What advice would you give to prepare? It's a very good question. It's a very important question. Uh, Of course, it's challenging material and I would be very careful not to bring um, guilt around whatever happened with your father because a lot of whether or not people are prepared for death is their own business and how they go through death is their own um, kind of karma and um, their process, really. It's like so many other things with people that we care about. There's only so much we can do. And they have their own their own process. But now that there's an opportunity to consider how uh, to support your mother and to look for yourself, how you will face your own death, then... Um, asking those key questions of what still is left undone for her or for you and how you might support her in doing anything that she would still like to do or talk with anyone, um, forgive. And it really makes a big difference of how she is in her own life, if she's going to want to hear about this or talk about this, but you can see if she's open to that. anything that you think she might be concerned about and see if she's up for talking about it. But I wouldn't put pressure on anyone to clean up their life before they die or do anything in particular. We might have ideas about what would be good for them to do, but it may not matter to them in some way. See what you need to do yourself to be okay with your parents' death and let them know that you're okay. It's okay, Mom. We're all right. Um, Of course, in preparation for death, we, you know, I don't know how far your mother's into this process, but. It's very good to discuss what people want and um, you know what they want when they die, what they want when they become ill. It's very good to make out the advanced directives for yourself and uh, help your family members with that, to, find, to know, you know, like, how do you want to be cared for if you can't make decisions for yourself. And these are challenging uh, conversations. They can be challenging conversations to have, but they're incredibly valuable for many people. It's very, very useful to know what people want so that when the time comes that you you have to make decisions, you're really making decisions based on what they've asked for, not something you have to decide for them. And I think as children, we really have... um, you know, the right to ask her parents what they actually want. And I, I don't want to make this decision for you, Mom. I want you to tell me if you would prefer to have, you know, lots of medical treatment or if you would prefer to die naturally. Do you want to die at home? Would you rather be in the hospital? We can't control all of that, but let's see if we can do kind of what you'd like to have. I had this conversation with my mother at least seven times in the last 10 years and we, we would update it. I know people who like visit this every year, just, I mean, you get better at it over time <laughs> and, you, and you start to realize more of the nuances of, of what you might wanna be um, thinking about and prepared for. So there are um, forms that you can get from various places online um, five wishes is one and there are there are other kinds of advanced directives and there are lots of great books out there about death and dying that can help you prepare and I think from from a, a perspective of Buddhism I think it's it's really nice to look into courses um, I just did one at the beginning of this year Um On the heavenly messengers, so aging, sickness, death and awakening. And to really kind of put all of the practical the practical pieces and the spiritual pieces into place. Hope that's useful. Oh yeah, we've got the those sessions are recorded and they're on our website for Karuna Buddhist Vihara. So you could listen. And you'd be welcome to also come and, and visit us and talk more about this sometime
0: oh, no, over the years I have heard read script snippets about um our conditioned dualistic perspective on the nature of reality. I believe I have a superficial understanding of the meaning of this at best. This dualistic worldview seems to have several dimensions. Could you elaborate on that? So yeah, I mean, you know, we're living, we are using language and, and, you know, our thinking process is conditioned by language so when we're thinking we're thinking in a dualistic way usually you know we can only you know we think black and white yes and no good and bad and all of that and through the practice you know increasingly you know this um, way of thinking you know is is kind of loosened up And, you know, when we are speaking about the unconditioned, you know, when the mind is, you know, for a moment open and doesn't contract, you know, around something in terms of judging it as good and bad, yes and no, black and white or whatever. When the mind is just open and is with the situation or with the object or with the person, just as it is without... Making a judgment, you know, then there is is a way of experiencing which is uh, non-dualistic, and uh, because you know we are deeply uh, you know in- influenced, of course, you know by by language and our whole thinking process is is like actually you know we are thinking in in the way you know we are we are speaking also so. It's a a way, you know, of uh, discriminating, but not necessary, you know. We don't need to judge in terms of good and bad, but, you know, some very unpleasant experiences, you know, looking at them back later in life turn out to have actually been very, quote-unquote, good turning points, you know. In my life, at least, you know, I've had Several experiences, which were looking to be, you know, very negative and bad, and everything went wrong. But now, looking back onto it, they have actually been very crucial turning points. and were the best things that could have ever happened to me, because I wouldn't have, you know, been able to wake up. So, you know, that is, there's a very clear indicator that, because if we are seeing it just you know, in a very short time frame, just a small outlook, then something can be good. In a a bigger context, it, it can be bad and vice versa. So, you know, we are not really able to decide what is what because it depends. It all depends. It's all interdependent. So this is why, you know, the practice... Is going in that direction to not judge. I mean, to still you know discriminate and 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 live in a way you know which is which is wholesome. Which means you know first of all not harming oneself and not harming other other beings. But otherwise you know it's it's uh, over you know over time in the practice. There comes you know like a, an inner kind of readiness to to not judge things so much anymore, and to, to step a little bit back from that and, and allowing you know things to go their own way without necessarily always interfering and wanting to make it all suitable you know, for what I like. And, you know, th- those teachings, those non-dualistic teachings, they are basically, you know, geared towards that, to to allow us, you know, to be more able to stay open. And you could say, you know, the unconditioned the nirvana is is the same approach, you know, this is the result of of insight, is... A greater and greater capacity to be with the way things are without pushing and pulling at
1: it. What is Buddhist understanding of queerness? How do we relate to being gender queer or transgender in light of the teachings on not on no self? So there's nothing in the Pali Canon about the Buddha making any mention of queerness or the only, the only um, thing that stands out for me around gender is that when he was asked if women could become enlightened as men can, he said, yes, this is no problem. So we can extrapolate from that. and, And the fact that there's nothing in there, there's certainly no admonishment or any kind of anything. Um, that that it falls into the category of things that the the Buddha didn't talk about things unless they were pertinent to enlightenment so he he wanted to teach and talk about the things that matter for us to wake (laughs) up and what gender you are what gender you identify with I don't think has anything to do with that it's my sense it's of course important that we're comfortable with ourselves and are treated um, kindly and fairly, and all of those things. So there's a whole range of, of um, you know, things around that to pay attention to and take care of ourselves and so on. But the Buddha, again and again, was kind of um, undercutting the values of the time that would sort of put people in categories and the categories he kept sorting us into are are these people virtuous are they are they keeping precepts are they honest are they you know he said these are the people to look up to the kind um, harmless So. That's what I would say. I think that um, you know how how we relate to the world based on our gender, and how we relate to each other, of course, is very much a part of our conventional experience. But in ultimate sense, so no self, when we recognize that this conglomeration of what we think we are really isn't a uh, we after all. And then, of course, this all all those differences f- kind of fall away. And there are deities. I mean, you're going to get reborn, probably, unless you get on the stick here and get enlightened. <laughs> but, um, or maybe I should just talk about myself. I'm going to get reborn unless I get on the stick and become enlightened. Um, but there are you know there's discussion in the canon or you know references to different deities that don't have gender um that don't get born the way we get born they're spontaneously reborn somewhere it's you know they're so i i'm yeah i think i think um living as virtuously as we can regardless of how that feels or works for us and being as kind and respectful of each other as we can be regardless it's what I think is going on in Buddhism what do you think?
0: and then you know through through increasing insight you know those um, you know identifications with oneself as anything they you know they are kind of getting more and more diluted same as what I said before you know those that Dualistic thinking gets more and more spacious, so everything gets more and more spacious, and and you know, and through being like this, the world meets one also different, you know. So it's just like yeah, you know, there's more and more space around identification, whatever identification it is, and and one way, you know, how we can kind of. Uh, express what merit is, merit is a space around experience, you know, and then through having the space around experience, we can learn even more from our experience, so it's like a self-perpetuating, goes to more and more, you know, opening up of the mind, and the walls coming down more and more, and there's less and less concern about me and my identity. And, uh, you know, that's that's an ongoing kind of a project, really. And uh, we can't see, you know, like much difference if we just look back a few weeks. But if we look back over the years of our practice, three, four, five, six years, you know, we, we should be able to see that, there's an opening up happening in the mind because if we don't, then there is, our practice is kind of not working.
1: Okay. So
0: um, that and that you know question here is connected with what I was just saying. Can you talk more about living from? the place of uncertainty, wisdom, that is not from the thinking mind. It's the same thing, you know, just a a delaying judgment. You know, which doesn't mean we are not discriminating, but judgment means, you know, in in terms of, is this good or bad, you know, for me. Because it really depends on, on the time frame you're looking at. And... I think you know what the teaching speaks about is seeing things in a really big context of lifetimes, really, and you know, and looking at things in a, in a, in a very different way than we usually do. If we if we don't if we don't you know, come in contact with a spiritual teaching, we tend to see things in a very kind of egocentric way, you know, and and self-gratification and all of these things is most important. But if we start to, you know, take an interest in, in a spiritual teaching, then the time frame becomes much bigger and uh, there's, you know, there's a capacity to... To you know to kind of discriminate more like in terms of what makes me grow you know in in what makes me grow in terms of uh, you know becoming a better human being and having more insight into the way things are becomes much more important than you know having everything my way so that I you know don't have unpleasant feeling that's not any more like the priority in life. Because, you know, to have everything always the way one wants it is actually very weakening because, you know, we don't develop any much resilience. You know, if we have constantly everything has to be exactly like I wanted and if if it's not like that I'm going to go crazy or something. And... You know, one can become really... I mean, and I think, you know, people in in those privileged countries, like this country, for example, (laughs) you know, have very little resilience, you know, when it comes to, you know, comes to how, how to comport oneself, you know, in nature or things like that. People don't know the most basic things, you know. So it's it's actually pretty sad, you know. And
1: uh, it's something to to think about. This is related, actually. Mm -hmm. How can you tell if aversion or sloth or torpor is present? I experience this when I can't remember why I want to practice. (laughs) It's like some kind of denial of my suffering, especially on retreat where we are surrounded by beauty, and, like, who wouldn't rather go out and play, right? So I think this is, you know, we can relate. Um, but it's just like, you know, like, we know there's value in doing the thing, you know, taking the option that actually expects us to do some work. And when we've got sloth and torpor assailing us, it's real work to stick with it. But that helps because we can we can um, we can work our way through it. So knowing, I mean, I think um, I'm I'm not sure if the way this is written, you mean can we tell whether it's sloth or torpor or aversion? But sloth and sloth and torpor, of course, are you know you're sitting there dull and and drowsy and. Um, then aversion can arise towards your having sloth and torpor, <laughs> or aversion could be underneath the sloth and torpor, which I think might be what the, what the person who wrote this meant. And this idea of denial, these are all ways in which we are trying to back away from feeling what we don't want to feel. And there are really so many more um, routines and techniques we've got to do that. So... Um, think i think in here i might have mentioned you know working with a coach that could help me face what i was experiencing and that was one of the main things i learned was you know like i you know there are just so many ways in which we back away and create some story or intellectualize or distract into something else or you know uh, decide this is somebody else's fault or, you know, there's just all kinds of ways that just, just pull us away from actually experiencing the moment and feeling the unpleasant feeling. So it's it's really, um, you know, I just really want to encourage you to, you know, stick with it and try to um, um, encourage your mind and don't worry if there are hindrances, you know, They'll go away. You can just, you know, you can outlast them. And there are, of course, antidote, antidotes to them. Um, and I just, I, I just really want to encourage you to listen to the stories of people who have gotten through big blocks in their, in their minds and really become much more free as a result because the payoff is incredible once you're able to really be with this experience and follow it all the way through and um, develop the ability to master it really And this
0: question is kind of also related: <clears throat> Is being bent on the truth and being bent on peace at the same time possible? Mm-hmm. I often feel not telling the truth leads to peace, and telling the truth leads to trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, as as Tusi said, you know, it, it it might take some time, you know, to. Being bent on truth might initially not feel very peaceful, because you, know, if you have to work through certain things, but it's, it's leading in that direction. You know? and, and any other kind of peace, which, which isn't coming from having a true insight, you know, in the way things are, is not real peace. It's, it's very shake, on very shaky ground, and it's not going to last. So if we want lasting peace then we have to go through those, you know, phases of, of maybe great hardship, you know, and having to work through layers of of uh, conditioning, and it might take time and painful and everything like that, but it will f- lead to truth. And, you know, and if there's like certain people who who are not receptive to the truth, then you don't necessarily have to steamroll them with the truth, really. You can just kind of, uh, you know, treat people in the way they what they can take because it's not necessary that we have to, uh, you know, tell people everything uh, what we consider that to be the truth. We can just you know keep that to ourselves and maybe you know kind of remove ourselves from the scene if that's, if it's not possible to speak about it and uh, you know, have cultivate friends who are receptive for that and, and pull away from people who are not. There's even one of the suttas is you know, uh, also one of the chants. And the Buddha is speaking very often from you know, um, not spending too much time with foolish people and seeking out you know, wise people. Because that really helps you know cultivating the mind. And then we don't have to uh, preach and you know, to people who who are not interested. This is kind of a bit of a uh, silly thing to do really.
1: I'd like to just add on to that that one of the things that may seem obvious, but wasn't obvious to me (laughs) years ago, was that um, there were a lot of things I didn't have to say at all that would cause trouble. And most of those were around my views and opinions and feelings. And once I was able to grasp the reality that my views and opinions and feelings are all unstable and unreliable, they're not truth, I didn't have to tell people that (laughs) truth. (laughs) And that was a big um, help. And um, the other place where I think we need some discernment around truth is um, sometimes telling people something and you know that their own view is distorted in a way that they're going to turn that into something that's not true it's better not to go there I think to not offer them something that they're going to twist in a way that leads to trouble because it's not true anymore I hope that makes some sense Mm -hmm. Um, so just a couple other little thoughts about that even when the mind is still, the thinking in in back, there remains the narrator, the one that sees or the consciousness. Do you ever get beyond, or is that even the aim? Um, I mean, certainly there there are these different levels of of consciousness that where the thinking stops. But from my perspective, um, that's one kind of aim, but the ultimate aim is insight. So we need a certain level of, of stillness and samadhi, and from the teachers I've talked to, um, they think you can go quite far, without, quite far into insight without having to get to states that are complete stillness. But that that background or that watching is is okay. We do want to bring the the mind to as much stability as possible.
0: That's my last uh, question. Could you explain these often used terms and how they point to different direct experiences inside? So inside, you know, means. You know, that we are, you know, through the, often through the meditation, suddenly, you know, we, we understand some very simple concept, like for example, you know, feelings are impermanent. To hear it is one thing, but to really experience it in your own body and mind, that will be an insight. So suddenly, you know, you have a painful feeling and you stay with it, and then suddenly it ends. And you have been really with it in the meditation, you know. If you experience that for a few times, it really sinks in deeply. This is one example of insight. But also we can, you know, see, for example, you know, you look back onto your life and then something which has happened like a few years ago, which totally devastated you, you find out suddenly, you know, that... Actually, this has been a, a real turning point in your life, and it was a great blessing. That can be an insight. So, so you know, seeing under the surface and uh, seeing into the depths, and uh, you know, and, and, and that makes one have much more faith in the process. And then we can take on, you know, even more difficult situations and not shrink away. Awakening. Awakening means, you know, just, it means simply waking up. And the word Bhutto, or Buddha means the awakened one. This is someone, you know, who who is not completely identified, you know, with feelings, perceptions, thoughts. Someone who is aware and awake. Somebody who is completely caught up in the thinking mind and completely identified is is like being asleep. And then if but if you know what's going on in the mind and in the body, you're awake. And it can be temporarily, you know, or it can be a, a permanent. Like a fully enlightened being would be permanently awake, would not be sucked in into anything anymore, you know, because the greed, hatred, and delusion has been completely let go of. So all of us here in this room, you know, we are all awake to a certain degree, otherwise we wouldn't have even bothered to come here. But we are not fully awake, because we are not yet fully enlightened. But we are on the way. And emptiness, emptiness is, you know, as Ayas and was saying today, I think, empty of self you know all phenomena my body and the basket here and the hole here they are all empty of an unchanging core entity so you know when my body dies and falls to pieces there's no, no little bit left over which you can say that's the core of Santa citta. there will be nothing left nothing whatsoever, everything will go back to the Elements, you know, all of the body parts and the bones and everything and just, you know, the consciousness will seek rebirth in, a, in, a, in another body and then once that body gets old or dies for some reason it go, goes back to the elements and consciousness will move on so that's what meant with emptiness you know, this body is empty of self because when it dies, it goes back to the elements and there's nothing left. It is empty because this body consists of the elements which are earth element and fire element, just the same elements which are all around us, you know, out there in the forest and in the walls of the building, you know, and those elements they come, you know, from the Big Bang uh, 14 billion years ago. They have been exploding out into the universe and getting Recycled since then, constantly recycled, and you know, form different entities, different phenomena, fall to pieces again, and nothing is ever lost. It's it's wonderful, I think. I find it very wonderful to think, you know, that my the elements in my body, you know, might have been belonging to a dinosaur some years ago. It's, isn't that wonderful to think in that way? I find it's very spacious way of, um, of, you know, having, looking onto one's uh, experience. It just makes it all so much bigger. And, and, you know, if we have space around experience, we not only have a more enjoyable life, but we also have much more capacity to, to look into the depths of it. Because it's not all like this, constantly me, 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 me everything has to be exactly like I wanted and last but not least spacious awareness actually this was I was just speaking about you know that to create space in one's life by looking at things
1: in a different way thank you so this will be my last question there's actually three in one How to live with someone that doesn't practice this way of life. Um, If we're practicing well, then our life will become more peaceful and hopefully the people who live with us will see that there's value in it. But it's important to try to, not, not to try to, change them or convince them of anything you probably already know that doesn't work very well it's important to be able to carve out the space and time to practice and hopefully whoever you're living with will be supportive of you doing what's good for you um, and support you in that even though they don't want to do it but it it is challenging and I think in every relationship, you find um, you have to find the the balance and the way that it will work for you. Now, if you're living with people that you're not committed to, say, then it might be worth considering how how you would like to live among people who are on the same path or um, interested in similar things. That can be really, really helpful. And one of the great advantages of being a a monk or a nun is you're living with people with the same aim. And it is very, very helpful. I think respecting each other for your choices of how you want to live your life is important. Even if you don't agree. How to let go of guilt. I... I think um, guilt is really another unwholesome mental state. So, again, back to that idea of acknowledging what we've done and forgiving ourselves for that and learning from it. And When we learn from it and we decide, I'm not going to do that anymore, I'm going to try not to do that anymore... And we, and we go about our, our life not doing that anymore, then it gets um, more and more diluted as, it, um, as we change. And so when guilt arises in the mind over something that we've done in the past, it's good to recognize it as, as unhelpful and unwholesome and to bring in wholesome states, so reminding ourselves I don't do that anymore. Or I'm, I'm taking action to recover or repair what happened and uh, remind yourself of the good that you're doing. The more we put the attention on the good that we're doing, not in some way that glosses over our, our bad habits, but in a way that is actually truthful. But, you know, do good and avoid doing things that are not good, and acknowledge that you're able to do that. What you're what you're doing that's wholesome, and how you're avoiding the unwholesome, and keep reminding yourself that this is you are on an upward path, and you are taking action, and you are learning. Um, and this, I think, is the last one: is venting about a difficult situation considered gossiping it can be it certainly can be Um, but sometimes it's really useful to talk about what's happening and i think it's good to have some ground rules around that so that it doesn't become gossiping so it's better if you can identify someone in your life Who's going to be able to listen and not pass on what you're going to say, what you say, uh, who can listen to you without jumping on the bandwagon of how awful so-and-so is, but hold that in a balanced way. That would be the best. And that you're talking to them specifically to work through what's happening. You're not just grousing. And, um, you know, so that's a kind of container that makes it a process rather than just gossiping and venting. And then, you know, just really being careful about who you say things to so that it doesn't make things worse. Um, there's been a request for some poly chanting, so we're going to um, honor that request.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.